Good morning once again. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here at the church. Glad to be with you all. I want to share a word with you that maybe you've never heard before, even if you've been coming to church your whole life. Have you ever heard a preacher preach about eating? Uh, That's the title of the talk today, Eating and the Gospel. Uh, Being from New York City, I am by default a foodie. New York City is a restaurant capital of the world, I would imagine. Um, And there are restaurants that come and go um, like clouds. They just pop up one day and then they're gone the next. The competition is fierce. And if your food isn't great, unless there's no other restaurant near you, you're probably not going to make it. Uh, the chances of a restaurant surviving in New York City are as abysmal as the chances of a church plant surviving, which, uh, which is about 10% is a national average. Uh, so uh, the, food, the food industry is a very serious and fiercely competitive industry, and I have come to really appreciate uh, food over the years especially in the last four years as I got to travel a lot through my job. Uh, I, got, I had an opportunity to taste the best offerings of uh, the cities that I was visiting uh, for my work. And I got to say, food doesn't just go into my belly, uh, but it really somehow enters my soul and it became sort of a, a love language. I would visit a city and I would be fatigued and jet-lagged and tired, uh, low on energy. And uh, if I happened upon really good, delicious food, I would feel sort of the nurture of my mother, the love of the living God in my life in a way that I was sorely needing. And so I have really become uh, appreciative of food. And I thought this topic would be especially relevant uh, as this is Thanksgiving Week and weekend, uh, many of us were with family and friends that we hadn't seen in a while. And what brought us together uh, was the table, was food. It was sharing this meal together, the breaking of bread that brought us together. And for some of us for good, some of us for ill. Um, and so what I want to do today is end on this note of what it means to eat and how that relates to the gospel. Uh, But I want to begin with um, where the story begins. And by the way, that was really beautifully read for us. Uh, As you can tell, every Sunday we're experimenting. Part of what I'm trying to do as the lead pastor of Mercer Island is to um, embrace a culture of experimentation. We can try out things, and we don't have to worry about failing, because when we fail, we're going to, as they say, fail forward. <clears throat> when, I was, um, when I was first discerning my call to Mercer Island, I had thought things uh, that I had not thought in a long time. When I was becoming a Christian, when I was becoming a more serious Christian back as a junior in college, I wrestled in great deal, a great deal about the whole idea of the sovereignty of God. What that means is that, uh, that Christians believe that God is in absolute control, that He is all powerful, all knowing, 
omnipresent. He's in all places at once. He is, by definition, God. And I really wrestled with this because I thought of myself as a free being, that I had volition, will, and I had the power of choice, and I can choose to uh, do good, I can choose to do evil, I can choose to be passive, I can choose to be active. But here is God who claims to be in control. And I grew up in the Presbyterian church, uh, which means that uh, I grew up with Reformed theology. And Reformed theology uh, means that uh, you, know, you really believe that God is in control and that nothing happens apart from His control and direct will. And that was really hard for me to reconcile in my life. If you ask me today if I am Reformed, uh, I don't know what I would say. I'm not sure that I would say that I am. Um, but I really wrestled with this again when I was pursuing my next calling and specifically considering Mercer Allen Covenant Church. Uh, one day I received an email from uh, a man that I had never heard of before named Tim Krell. And um, I had turned down or ignored or rejected lots of sort of different opportunities. And I was ready to do the same uh, with this email from this uh, stranger. But there's something in the email that grabbed me and sort of opened me up. And I thought, you know, I'm going to save this in my inbox. And uh, so I left it there. And then I would read it uh, a few times throughout the day. I did that for a few days. I talked to my wife about it. I said, honey, there's this email from this church. And later on, I realized I had heard about your church. And in fact, two years ago, you all had invited me to come out and speak uh, during the summertime as part of uh, what, you know, what's called pulpit supply. I'm not sure I like that name. Um, uh, but I had said no just because it was so far away and uh, I didn't want to do that. Uh, but I kind of recall that incident, that exchange with uh, a person that had emailed me about that. And so I talked to Susie and Susie said, oh, do you, do you know about this? Church? I said, you know, I don't know much about it, but I'm kind of interested uh, but at that time, I was in deep in conversation with another church. And, uh, but that, that, that email from Tim Krell served as sort of a, uh, a, sort of, uh, a wrench in the system. And uh, it began, as I uh, would affectionately say now, it began to wreck my world. <laughs> Everything was lined up just the way it was supposed to be. But along comes this sort of latecomer to, uh, you know, to my field of vision. And so I began to wrestle with God's will. All of a sudden, what I desired and what I preferred and what I knew became a little bit elusive, confusing. And I began to desire to know what God thought about this matter. Now, I consider myself to be a pretty competent person. Um, I'm really uh, prone to do a lot of research and think, and I also have a lot of friends and mentors in my life, and I seek their wisdom and advice all the time. And so I sort of don't think about God's will from a theological perspective on a normal basis. But at this point in time, I began to think a lot about God's will. How does God's will work? 
when I clearly have free will. The reality of choice was before me. Right? Including um, this church, there were a total of about 16 options I was considering. Now, I can choose, right? I can clearly make a choice. But how does God's will play into this? Is there such a thing as God? And if he is God, what role, what part does he play in my life? And if he plays a part, how does he play that part? Let's say I was leaning towards Mercer Island, but God had a separate and different will. How would he convey that will? And will that will eventually win out over my will? And when it does, and if it does, will it happen through my will or will it happen sort of as an outside force? Will I hear from God? Will I feel God? Will it just be a voice in my head? Would it be my mother speaking and I would think that was God? Would doors close? Christians love to use the idea of doors closing. And then other doors open. And if all doors close, then God conveniently opens a window. I don't know how all of these metaphors and cute little, uh, you know, uh, things work. But I know I was really curious and I needed to know what God's thoughts were on the matter. Because all of a sudden I, in my competence and intelligence and experience, I was confused. I wanted to know what he thought. Now, uh, in the story that was so beautifully read for us, I, by the way, I took out chunks of the passage not to change the story, but to uh, just help us to focus better on the verses that are pertinent to this uh, conversation today. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote a bulk of the New Testament, uh, Paul and these men who are um, his... Uh, uh, who are his captors, are out in the open sea. They are on a boat. And Paul had warned the men prior to our reading that they should not set sail because the weather was bad and Paul had a bad feeling about this trip. Right now, we don't know if that was God or if that was Paul or if that was lunch or if that was dinner. We don't know what that was. But Paul had a feeling that this trip was going to go bad. Right? And so Paul warns these men, they don't listen, they set sail, and they're caught in a terrible storm, and the ship is falling apart. And these men and Paul, they are fighting for their lives. And you could imagine the drama of this story, the situation. And in a situation like this, the boundaries between men and God blur very quickly. Men who have never prayed before will pray in a situation like this. It's almost a, I swear to God I'm an atheist moment. <laughs> Lives are at stake. There are surprises. The storm is unpredictable. The storm is tearing the boat apart. Boundaries blur. Three things I want us to learn. Number one, Active, not passive. Two, more, not less. Three, eat, not starve. First, active, not passive. In verses 22 
to 24, we have a Paul who receives a clear and certain, what I would call a guarantee from God. Right? An angel of the Lord appears to Paul and says to him, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar. There is the will of God in this matter. This storm is not from hell, but from heaven. And you and everybody else, you will be safe. Not one of you. And the idiom here is, not a single hair on your head will be harmed, which is their way of saying nobody is going to die. Everybody is going to be safe. Now, that's about as close to an explicit divine guarantee as a human being can get. And, uh, you know, being the perpetual high schooler that I am, um, I thought about the SATs when I first read this story. And I remember praying my heart out for God to somehow let me score well on the SATs. And I remember praying that God would somehow give me a guarantee that I would do well. It wasn't so that I would study more. It was so that I wouldn't have to study at all. <laughs> right? And isn't that sort of what we think? That if God is going to do something, if something is guaranteed, we don't work more, we work less. Right? And so the question I have is, why in the world then, if Paul has, a, has an absolute and clear guarantee from God, does Paul the human being, spring into action. What are some of the threats that he's spewing out? Men try to escape from the ship, and Paul says to them, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. What? Paul is clearly contradicting God here. He just heard a few verses ago that God was going to guarantee everybody's safety. And now Paul is putting an if conditional statement out there. How does that make any sense? What kind of contradiction is this? And then he goes on to say, if you don't eat, because men were not eating, if you don't eat, you're going to die. But before that happens, other men try to kill Paul. And one of the other men, they save Paul's life. Why is there all this frantic activity if there is a clear and absolute guarantee from God? How does this work? Paul or God, right? Why, if God has promised, does Paul act? And if Paul acts, did he actually receive a promise from God? Why does Paul act? And the answer, I think, is in the story. It's in verse 25. Verse 25, Paul gives the reason why we need to act. He says, therefore, keep up your courage, men, for, and the Greek word there is because, for, or because I have faith in God, just that it will be just as I have been told.
told. Not Paul or God, but Paul because of God. The reason Paul acted is because he believed that God is the one who is going to do it. Because Paul had the guarantee, he acted. The promise of God led to the activity of Paul. What do you think about that? Because Paul believed, he acted. By design, you and I are creatures of faith. We are made for faith. We are made for grace, for God. Our activity, our will, our choice, our free will, these things do not displace God, but they were designed by God to help us to join God in what He is already doing. Therefore, what God has promised He is going to do is what causes us to act towards the fulfillment of that promise. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, God causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. Now, is it God or is it physics? In fact, we know that the sun doesn't rise at all. Right? It's the earth that's moving around the sun. Right? We know heliocentricity is true. But Scripture says God causes the sun. How, How does that work? Is it God or is it physics? It's God and physics. It's God through physics. It's physics because of God. And this is what Paul is saying here. Because I believe, I act. By design, Paul says, I am a creature of faith. And because I have faith in God's word, I will act. Paul doesn't displace God, but he joins God. There's a little story that Jesus tells in Matthew 25. It's what's more famously called the parable of the talents. It's when a master is going away and he has these three servants. And to each servant, he gives a different amount of money. And he says, do with this money as you will. I'm going away and I'm coming back. So the master comes back and the first servant says, master, here's what you gave, but here's double because I invested it. To the second servant, he comes and the second servant says, master, I have doubled what you have given to me. And there's a third servant And the master goes to this third servant and says, Master, I knew you were kind of a cheap person. And so I was afraid. Okay, that's a key word there. He says, I was afraid. And the master says, what do you mean? And the servant says, well, I buried it in the ground. And here's what you gave me, exactly to the penny what you gave me. And the master says, you wicked and lazy servant. You know what that means? That means that nobody is just lazy. That you and I, we all have points of laziness. We're not diligent everywhere all the time, are we? No, we we are all lazy sometimes and somewhere. And at those points of laziness, underneath it lie our fears. 
I was afraid, therefore I buried it. I was afraid, therefore I was passive rather than active. I was afraid, therefore I played safe rather than taking a risk. I saw investment opportunities and I passed them by because of my fear. And the master says, you lazy servant. We all have points of laziness and these points of laziness indicate the areas of our fear. Fear leads to passivity. Faith leads to activity. We mistakenly think that fear leads to diligence, don't we? That if we are afraid, then we will become active. We have to act to survive. You know, there's a really fun little story that I uh, read in February. Um, It's in an article called, What You Need to Succeed, uh, by Ingrid Winklegren. And it's from Scientific American. And this article is all about motivation. What actually motivates the human being to act? What allows us to accomplish great things? What allows uh, human beings to push through obstacles, to be tenacious, and to be able to uh, 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 push through the setbacks and cause us to uh, sort of be alive and active. And in this article, uh, this author, Ingrid Winklegren, she concludes that there is what a key component that all human beings must have in order to be able to achieve anything of worth or significance. And uh, what this key component is called is psychological capital. That unless we have psychological capital, we really can't push through any obstacles. And therefore, we're never going to achieve anything great. And she breaks down what she means by psychological capital. She said these four things is what psychological capital is about. She says it's efficacy, which is our self-confidence. Resilience, which is us believing that we can bounce back from setbacks. Hope belief that we can achieve our goals, and fourth, optimism, that we expect good things to happen in the future. Efficacy, resilience, hope, and optimism. She said this is what psychological capital is, and this is what's necessary. I want to submit to you that psychological capital, resilience, efficacy, hope, and optimism is what scriptures call faith. And what scriptures tell us is that faith, real, genuine faith, if you believe, it naturally and inevitably leads to what scriptures call works. That faith leads to works. And if there isn't works, if what you see is more passivity rather than activity, then that means there is really a fear that's paralyzing you rather than faith. That if you believe God already hears your prayers, that He knows your thoughts, that very truth, if you believe that, actually causes you to pray even more, not less. 
Scriptures tell us that God knows the words before they are formed on our tongue. And if you believe that, it actually makes you pray more. If you believe that God has already won the victory, that somehow us believing that causes us to fight even harder. Do you believe that? That if we know the race is already won by our great big brother, Jesus Christ, then it causes us. It's like pouring gasoline into a car. It causes us to run the race all the more. When you're running out of motivation and action in your life, my suggestion would be for you to figure out what you're afraid of. God's promises, His grace, and His work lead to activity, not passivity. Lots of you have shared with me that you believe that God is doing a new and powerful work in our midst as a church. The Mercer Island Covenant Church is a place where God dwells and you feel the presence of His Spirit. You sense energy and momentum. You feel excitement in your heart that you yourselves feel the stirring because God is doing something. And it is my belief, assumption in fact, that as soon as we begin to uh, know more of the specifics of how we are to live into that, we're going to become more active as a church rather than passive that we're going to need finances as a church to do the new and bigger things God is wanting us to engage in. And I'm not worried about money at all as a church, though we have been declining financially for the last 20 years. Because if you really believe God is working in our midst, and you see it, you feel it, you sense it, you're going to give. You want to not just give, but you want to invest in something that God himself will grow. One of my ministry philosophies is we are not going to start a single ministry without human resources. Unless there is leadership, we are not going to do ministry. Whatever how small that ministry might be, we need leadership. But I'm not worried at all. Because if you really believe the need is there, and our church is supposed to engage that need, Leaders are going to rise up in activity. We're not going to say, well, God is going to do it. We don't have to. We on a deep level know if something is moving, we want to hop on. That's the way we are wired. Second, more, not less. Verse 23. For last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve came to me. Why did the angel of the Lord come? The angel of the Lord came to Paul, not because Paul was some great apostle, not because he had pleased God in some way, shape, or form. But the only reason the angel came, I think, is precisely because of the storm. What did the angel say? 
Don't worry about the storm. You're going to make it. If there was no storm, the angel would have had to say nothing. The angel would not have come because all the angel said was, don't worry about the storm. The storm is precisely why the angel came. And I don't know if you feel like a strong, able person, but I feel like a pretty fickle and fragile person. I'm in touch with my demons and my angels. I'm in touch with my mess and the chaos in my heart. I understand that what I consider to be faith is mostly, as C.S. Lewis calls it, mood. I'm, I'm very weak. In other words, I'm a human being. And this is, that's why this is so important to me. This truth, and perhaps this is one of the deepest existential truths, that God is near, nearest to Paul when Paul feels on an existential level like God is furthest from him. You understand, Paul isn't some superhuman. He's just like you and me. And there is a storm. And he's already been beaten up and he's been imprisoned. He's in chains here. He's on this ship, not because it's a cruise ship. He's a prisoner. What would you think if you were a prisoner and you came this close to death just moments before you got on the ship? You would feel like God has abandoned you. That's how I would feel. It takes nothing for me to feel like, oh, woe is me. Where is God? Why is there suffering in this world if God is good? I can feel like that from a flat tire. (laughs) My toilet can start leaking again, and I will question the goodness of God, you understand? (laughs) It takes nothing for my mood to change. And yet here is Paul being visited by the God of the universe. Because, precisely because of the storm. God is nearest to this bunch here when they feel the most abandoned by God. In fact, you know, the sailors um, in part of the story, they are starving themselves because they are trying to get the attention of the gods saying, we're sorry, we're so sorry. Please, we're going to self-harm. If that's going to pay some debt, please save us. And here is an angel of the Lord coming to them. And so in this story, in this part of the story, is what I would call a theology of moreness. That you and I as human beings, when the going gets tough, we're out of there. If the ship is sinking, we're off the ship. That we abandon. And like I've said before, I pre-abandon sometimes. If I think you're going to abandon, I'm going to beat you to the punch. And yet here is God. Grace abounds when sin abounds. God is near to those who are brokenhearted and who are contrite, who are feeling the bruises and the cuts of life. God is there. Now, I want to suggest to you that we don't understand this very well. This is against our human nature. Our nature is to go into self-preservation mode. 
That's what we do. The moment we sense somebody's taking advantage of our grace, we withdraw grace. Well, we have to because we're morally obligated. We have to teach them a lesson. Right? We, got, we have to balance this, this tandem bike out somehow. We don't want to tip over. And yet here is God, off balance. Sailors clearly deserving this death because they didn't listen to Paul in the first place. And here is God approaching them, loving on them, protecting them. I thought about this when I first heard about Tom and Linda's son, Rick. I, I realized I just was, I said it wrong. Um, and I've, I've never uh, had to make an announcement like this before. Uh, but I said earlier in the beginning of the service that uh, Rick, their son, was killed. He wasn't killed. Uh, he died. You know, he, he uh, was on the dock with the whole family. His wheelchair fell over into the dock, fell about uh, eight feet into the water. He was strapped in. And uh, they tried to rescue him, but they couldn't. He was underwater for 20 minutes. When the fireman came and he was resuscitated, he was already brain dead. And so he's been in a coma since Thursday. And this morning, I believe, uh, they released him. And uh, you could imagine what it's like to be parents, to watch your child die twice. And he was paralyzed. He was a, a quadriplegic uh, from a swimming accident 10 years ago in California. And so for the last 10 years, Tom and Linda's life, along with Rick's, just in turmoil. And they, they asked me to share this story with you. And so I share that right now. It is easy for them to feel like God is far and not near. When Scripture testifies, though, the very opposite, that God is nearest to Tom and Linda at this moment as they navigate this tragedy. Another uh, research paper I want to mention here is an article called Delaying Gratification is About Worldview as Much as Willpower. It's by a man named Bruce Bauer, and it's in a magazine called Science News. And it just came out November 17th. I read it in the online edition about a month ago before it came out in print. And this is a fascinating article to me because this is the famous marshmallow experiment with little kids. Anybody hear that um, story before? Marshmallow and the kids. The basic uh, experiment was they had these kids sit around the table and each of these kids were given a marshmallow. And they were told, if you don't eat the marshmallow that's in front of you, you can if you want to. But if you don't eat it, I'm going to come back in a few minutes and I'm going to give you even more marshmallows. And then they, they set the video camera to rolling, and they watched these kids, right? And the first conclusion, uh, actually what happened is some kids ate the marshmallow, some kids didn't. And then they followed these kids over the course of their life to see how they would turn out in life. It's a cruel experiment. <laughs> But the first conclusion they drew was that the ability to delay gratification is the key to success in life. And they said, willpower. The stronger your willpower, 
the greater your ability to succeed in life. This was the conclusion they drew. And then, uh, about 10 years ago, they began to restudy the data. And what they realized was that that first conclusion was totally false. And their new um, hypothesis was that it's not really about willpower, that willpower is relatively the same in people, if you can believe this. But the real key to our ability to delay gratification is not willpower, but it's ability to distract ourselves. And they pointed out that the kids who are able to not eat the marshmallow began to play games with themselves, like playing with their feet or playing with their hair or making shapes with their fingers, whereas the kids who eventually ended up eating the marshmallows early were the ones who were just staring at the marshmallow (laughs) and trying to exercise willpower, whereas the ones who didn't eat the marshmallows were the ones who ignored their willpower but just focused on something else altogether. So they said distraction, strategic distraction is the key to life. Okay? Now, on October 17th, 2012, they published, Bruce uh, Bauer published a new uh, finding and said, no, 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 the willpower thing is all wrong, the distraction thing is all wrong. Here is... The, the real truth behind the experiment. And uh, this is fresh off the press, and he says this. He says, the key to delaying gratification, it's not willpower, it's not distraction, but it's your authority figures. In fact, what he realized was you trace the family history, not just forward into their life, but back into their family of origin and what kind of parents they had. What they found out was that the kids who ate the marshmallows early had authority figures in their life who had broken promises, who had failed to be the kind of trustworthy authority figures that would be necessary for them to believe that the moderators of the experiment would keep their word and actually return with more marshmallows. Did you think really it was the kids' fault, parents? (laughs) I don't know what my conclusion is. I think a lot of it is probably all true. But I was really touched by the fact that human beings fundamentally are fearful of trusting. That those poor kids who could not keep their fingers off those marshmallows and who ended up not doing as well in life had authority figures in their life who had proven to them by the time the experiment was already being done on them, it was already too late. They already didn't trust an authority. And I related to that. That's my human experience. I have needed God in my life to prove himself as trustworthy. That his promises are true. That his word is dependable. That in him are yes and amen. I don't know what your experience of authority figures are in your life. But for me, it's always been less more than more. 
But here is God, a theology of mourners. I am trustworthy. Even when you're down, my word is true. I will be faithful to you. And lastly, eat not starve. The scene of the Apostle Paul breaking bread in verse 33 to 35, it's kind of a random happening, if you will. And uh, I was a literature major, and so I'm sort of trained to pick out the key moments in a story. And I want to suggest to you that this is the climax of the story when Paul is breaking bread. Imagine in your heads what's happening here on this ship. There's a raging storm, okay? Some men try to escape, so they cut the, sh- cut the smaller boats, and they're all gone. The sails are torn. The ship is breaking apart. They have no more food. They've thrown it all overboard to either starve themselves or to lighten the load of the ship. Men are trying to kill each other, including Paul. They're all divided. They're frantically running around. It's utter chaos. Imagine this on a movie screen. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in the middle of the storm, there's this little guy. Paul was little, they say. He wasn't very good looking. He was short and he had a speech impediment. Not a very imposing figure, right? And there is this little guy in the midst of all of this chaos, in the midst of the storm. He takes bread and he breaks it. And in front of them all, he starts praying. He gives thanks to God in the middle of the storm, in the middle of certain death. He is praying a prayer of thanksgiving. What is Paul doing? Being an oblivious, goody two shoes Christian, right? Sticking his head in the sand, being in denial of reality, being narrow minded. Is that what Paul is doing? No. Paul, just like he wrote in the, in, in the, in the uh, letters, uh, in, in the Pauline epistles, he is defying death. While everybody is in survival mode, trying to not die even at the cost of killing each other, Paul is saying, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your... He is mocking death. He's saying to death, you don't scare me. You mean nothing to me. Death has already been conquered. I normalize the storm. This storm means nothing to me. My God, the God who visited me, the God whom I serve is able to save me. And even if he doesn't, I will still praise him. I join Daniel and his friends. I join Esther. I join Jesus himself. Death, where is your sting? That's why this is the climax. And early church fathers have adopted this very passage in the practice of what we today call communion. Why do we break bread together? Paul wasn't just doing this because it was the first Sunday of the month. We do it. We imitate Paul who's imitating Jesus. What did Jesus do in the night of his storm? He broke bread. 
How strange is that? You guys, I'm about to get arrested. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be killed. But before we get to that, let's have a nice meal. Jesus is normalizing the storm. He is defying death. He is mocking death. Why do Christians eat together when we gather together? You think, you think it's about the bagels outside? We are saying Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And he has gone before us. And he died so that we could live. And he lives now so that we might live forever. Death, where is your sting? The sting of death has been taken away. This is why we break bread together. That this is why we come together as a family, as a, as a community. I remember when 9-11 first happened. John Stewart, the great pr- prophet and comedian on Comedy Central, he said, why am I still doing my show? Because we are going to defy death. We are going to normalize the storm. This is what we do. Communion in the midst of the storm. And we define salvation not as survival, but as resurrection. And communion is an act of trust in God and defiance against death. It allows us to have confidence and patience and playfulness and laughter, ability to suffer and persevere and work, allows us to have peace and rest, allows God and I to coexist here on earth as we will in heaven. When we are starving, we shift into small and saving and calculating and getting mode. But when we are eating together, we give, we forgive, we accept, and we love. Yes, you have hurt me, but let's talk about it over a meal. Yes, we will die. As Billy Graham says, the death rate still remains the same. One death per person. But we normalize it and we eat together. This is why we gather together even as Tom and Linda grieve. Because Jesus Christ is trustworthy. Because his body was broken for us. That his promises might be true. Together we are invited to a journey of diligence, of grace, Together, would you bow your heads with me? Father, a lot of things um, were conveyed through this storm in Paul's life. And even today, many thousands thousands of years later, we still read about it and learn lessons from it. But the lesson of all is that he was able to worship you in the midst of the storm because you endure the storm for us. So Lord Jesus, we remember you and we give you thanks for what you have done for us. You alone are trustworthy.
worthy. You alone take away our fears. You alone are worthy of our praise. We give you thanks today as a church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.